Again, I'm glad you chose to be here Tuesday night. You could be doing anything. You chose to come here. Thank you for that bit of encouragement, for this work, for this opportunity, for this gospel meeting, and for the guy that's doing uh, the preaching here. Thank you for that. Uh, I have been accused from time to time as a preacher of, of meddling. You know, people come out and say, you've done good preaching and gone to med. I never know until tonight that an introduction could be met. <laughs> Interviewing a guy's grandkids. Now, that's, uh, I'm not sure that's fair. Uh, but I, I do appreciate that uh, intent. I do appreciate my grandsons and what they're doing uh, as far as spiritual things are concerned. So... Thank you for encouraging them. You're their home congregation, and that's good to know. And uh, those connections that we have, very special to us. So thank you for letting me be here in this gospel meeting. You've got your Bible. Let's start with Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Because tonight, although I did not announce it last night, because I wasn't sure if this is what I was going to do. Tonight we're going to talk about five things that Jesus did not come to do. Five things Jesus did not come to do. There's a lot going on in this world right now, and some of it is in reference to Jesus Christ. I don't know if you understood the movie or not, the book that is behind the movie, but uh, The Da Vinci Code. Uh, the Da Vinci Code is an attempt to discredit the historical accuracy of the Gospels. It is an attempt to uh, shed, uh, or put rather shadows of doubt upon the Gospel records about the life of Christ and what we understand the New Testament to teach about Him. Uh, the implication is that Jesus had children. He was married to Mary Magdalene and, and He had children by her. Uh, the Bible does not endorse that idea. The Bible does not suggest and the Bible does not allow that idea. Uh, Christ only had one bride, Ephesians 5. It's his church. Uh, but there are those who are trying to discredit New Testament Christianity. Uh, and some folks think that that's right. There are some folks who think that they've found bits of history. And it's just got to be in denial of all of the right information and confirmed information we have about him by one little bit of speculative information surely discredits everything else. And so they put all of their faith in that which discredits New Testament Christianity. Well, that kind of thing, I don't like it, but doesn't it challenge you? Doesn't it make you want to go back and reinforce your faith? And there's something we can do with that. There's a good way to handle that. We need to know for sure who Jesus is. We need to know the positive affirmations about Jesus. We need to know the positive material regarding who he is. Remember that question in Matthew 16. When Jesus asked the disciples first, who did men say that I, the Son of Man, am? We're going to ask that today. The Da Vinci Code would be one answer that some people would give. But Peter gave the right answer, remember, in Matthew 16, verse 16. When he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that's who Jesus is. That's a positive affirmation. We've got all kinds of information that will help us in the New Testament to show 
That is a valid assessment of that evidence. But on the other hand, there are some negative things we can look at that also help us identify who Jesus is. There are some negative things that we can use to help us know who Jesus is not. What he did not come to do is certainly one area where we can do that. You know, three times in Matthew 24, uh, Jesus said that false Christ would arise. Uh, and so we understand that's a negative concept. There would be people who would misrepresent themselves and claim to be Jesus the Christ. Well, if we know who he is, and we know it from the positive and the negative side, we would know in Matthew 24, uh, no, it can't be the Christ at the wrong time. Uh, and secondly, it can't be the Christ. He came in the wrong manner. If, if you're going to try to get that slipped back by the people of God in Matthew 23, the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. No, that wasn't Jesus. Now, God was acting, uh, but no, that wasn't Jesus. That was a false Christ. We can find some things that Jesus actually told us uh, that he did not come to do. We can look at those things and we can know, all right, anybody that claims to do that which he did not come to do must not be him. And we need to understand just exactly who Jesus is and what he was all about. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, first of all, Jesus said, Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For heaven and earth pass away, one jot, that's a yod, or one tittle, one little part of a Hebrew letter, shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Now there's some folks that immediately latch on to that as they see. The old law is going to stand forever. The old law was going to carry on, and we still live under it today, only it's been modified a little bit. No. You missed a very important phrase in what Jesus said there, if you believe in that. Jesus said, till all be fulfilled. Now I'm getting a picture here of a deadline out here. If I were to tell you to wait until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that would be a definite time. Uh, you waited until 3 o'clock in the afternoon and whatever we had planned to do, I didn't show up. Well, then by that time, you know, okay, I can go on. Well, Jesus said, uh, the old law is going to stand not one bit of it. Friends, that's very important. Because you see, Jesus placed emphasis on that old law uh, because every part of it was important regarding him. In Luke 24, verse 44, he said, now These are the things that I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things that are written of me. Now notice the three parts of the Old Testament. Uh, that's the way the Old Testament was divided back then. Jesus said, all things that are written of me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything written about him. All those letters that have the, the yod, the jot, we read in the King James translation. Yod's just that little bitty letter, looks kind of like a comma. It, it, it's the Y of the Hebrew alphabet. And the tittle, uh, one way to distinguish a letter, one letter from another, a little mark off the side of that letter that distinguishes it from one other letter. Uh, 
none of that's going to, everything about the Old Testament was important because Jesus came to fulfill all of it. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul was reflecting on his brethren, his Jewish brethren, not brethren in Christ, but those brethren in the flesh. And we're going to get to what he said about them in the first three verses in just a minute, but notice what he said in verse 4, for Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To accomplish the righteousness that God wanted to accomplish on behalf of mankind. Jesus is the end, the fulfilling of that law. He brought it to its fullest point. He, he brought it to its greatest reality. He fulfilled that law. Why is all that important? Well, because Jesus said there would be a time when it would be fulfilled. And he told us in Luke 24, 44, when that was. After his resurrection, it was all fulfilled. He had accomplished what he intended to accomplish in and of himself in that time period. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, he, he did better than Alexander the Great in his 33 and a half years, didn't he? Uh, Alexander the Great conquered some countries, conquered some empires, but Jesus conquered Satan. He overcame him uh, who had the power of death. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 tells us. Here Jesus has fulfilled everything the old law had to say about God's plan for humanity. Uh, bringing it to its fulfillment. Now, we need to be sure that we're rightly dividing this word of God. We need to be sure when Jesus said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill, that we understand what we have in the new covenant is the fulfilled old law. It's been brought as far as it could bring us. It brought us to Christ, Galatians 3, 24 and 25. And now through what that old law accomplished, we have the new law of Christ because of that new covenant of Christ that he signed in his blood, Matthew 26, 28. We now can be children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Not by faith in Moses, not by keeping the law of Moses, but by the faith of the gospel. The faith that Jesus brought to reality in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. He accomplished it all. Now, remember when that happened. When was all this brought to its fullest point? When was this finalized? When could Jesus say, it's been fulfilled? Well, Paul helped with that, helped our understanding of Colossians 2 verse 14. It said he blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Colossians 2 verse 14, the old law was nailed to the cross. It brought all that the law was trying to do to fulfillment, nailed it to his cross. That's what it is. The, the point of the enactment of a will. My father died in 2004. I was appointed executor uh, for that occasion. And we had to wait 90 days while that will was in probation, making sure there was nobody had a legal claim against my father's estate, etc., etc. But that will did not go into effect until after my daddy died. Hebrews 9, 16 and 17 says, a testament is a force after men are dead. The new covenant of Christ went into effect after he died. Now, 
There's a point that we need to clear up here. Because some people have a misguided, misdirected idea that they now draw from that fact. My wife was reading online, someone claiming that Matthew 19, verse 9 is not part of the New Covenant. That's part of the Old. That's part of the Old Law. Jesus said it while he was still alive. Therefore, it's part of the Old Law. Friends, that negates any and everything then that Jesus said, would it not? Didn't Jesus at the end of his life, after he had been resurrected from the dead, after, at the end of his work on earth, I should say, uh, when he was addressing the disciples just before his departure, Matthew 28 and verse 20, he said, teaching them to observe, and probably a lot of the young people could finish that statement, all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Matthew 19, 9 would fall under that heading of things that Jesus had commanded. Because you don't find those words of Jesus in the old law. Those are the words of Christ. Now, whoever's making this objection, raising this objection, is saying, oh, that's old law, we don't live by that anymore, needs to go back to 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. Here, here's somebody you need to watch out for, Paul was telling Timothy. You watch out for these preachers who come along and, and, and they're all concerned about their own debts. Uh, they're concerned about the paycheck. Uh, that's their ambition in life. They're preaching for money. He said, now those fellas... They don't know the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which is according to godliness. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ are part of that new cup. Yes, he taught them while the old was still in effect, but they were intended to be part of his covenant with mankind. Uh, they were part of and are part of that new covenant of Jesus Christ. To rightly and carefully divide the word and not make some assertion such as that. Just because we think we're applying a principle, be very careful that you don't twist the scripture when you're applying some principle. Don't make the Bible contradict the Bible. In fact, and they say, well, 1 Corinthians 7 is, is where you go now for the teaching of the Lord on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and that's all we've got. Well, didn't Paul say there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Uh, now, these things I say not the Lord. Some of these things prior to that the Lord had said. Some of these things the Lord didn't say. Where did Paul put that? He put it in the New Covenant. He put that under those things that he said he had been given by the commandment of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37. While Jesus said, I came not to fulfill, or rather to destroy the old law, but to fulfill it. He did not mean that the old law would never go out of power as far as being authoritative of that to which man should submit. Uh, the new covenant is that to which mankind must now submit. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Now that's just the first thing that Jesus said he did not come to do. You've got the Bibles turned now to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, verses 12 and 13. You may know the saying, Jesus is in the house of a publican, most likely Levi. He had just called Levi to come follow him, and he accepted that invitation, and now he's in a house where there are publicans and sinners around, and the Pharisees are talking about, oh, now, he's, he's eating with publicans and sinners. 
Verse 12, when Jesus heard that, oh, wouldn't it be something to know that you'd been whispering about something Jesus was doing and then all of a sudden you know he heard you? When Jesus heard that, he said, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but he came to call sinners to repentance. Now, don't you just know when he said that, that he was telling those fellows who said that about him, you need to ask the question, am I really righteous? Am I as righteous as I think I am based upon what Jesus just said? Is that maybe not a, a backhanded way of Jesus saying you need this? What, what I'm telling you, what I'm teaching, what I'm showing, you need it. When he told them to go and learn what that means, if I will have mercy not sacrifice, real interesting. Uh, that's being applied to people uh, back in the book of Hosea who were discounting their brethren, who were mistreating their own brethren, disregarding the welfare, the well-being of their poor brethren. Who is poorer than someone who's lost in sin? That's the poorest person I know, I think. They don't have Christ. They don't have salvation. They're as poor as anyone can be in this world. So Jesus is telling them, you need to go learn what that means. Now, another interesting little side note based on that. If you look in your margin reference Bible, if you've got that there in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13, it probably says Matthew 12, verse 7. Because there in that, somewhere in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus responds to these same people again. And these people now are saying, He cast out demons by the power of the oaths of us. Jesus says, If you have learned what that means, Jesus said, you missed your homework assignment. You didn't do the homework that I gave you to do. You did not go and learn what that means. Had you done that, you would be saying, Lord, how can man be righteous before God? How can you make us righteous? Because we realize we're not. They never came to that reality, at least not by that point they had. Maybe they went after that and said, Oh, I, I forgot my homework assignment. Let me go back and look that up. Maybe they did after that. But you see, what they needed to learn was poverty of spirit. They needed to, to become poor. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Unless I become poor in spirit, I will not realize my dependence upon my need for God in my life. Now, let's go back to Romans 10 now. Paul's talking about his Jewish brethren that were had rejected and were still rejecting Jesus Christ. And, and notice, even then, we're talking probably about some people that had had part in persecuting not just Jesus, but now persecuting Paul. And he's not just talking about people he knew individually, personally, that might have been kin to him, uh, might have been of the same tribe that he was, Benjamin. Perhaps, perhaps not. I think he's talking about all Jews everywhere now. 
Because he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. That's the nation. All the people in that nation of Israel. And that meaning who were not Christians. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Notice verse 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Who did Jesus come to call? Not the righteous, but sinners. They thought they were righteous. They thought they had created, found their own way to be righteous in the sight of God. And Paul says they're not. They're imagining it. They're misguided. They do not understand. Friends, I'm persuaded that's a problem with our world today. Brother Charles Hodge, many years ago, I heard him in a gospel meeting when I was a teenager. He said, the problem today is there's not enough respectable sinners around. Uh, not enough people who will admit, I'm lost in sin. Not enough people who will say, I know I need help. Can you show me the way? If there were people saying that, our work would be a whole lot easier with the We'd be able to, to be busy all the time. If people would admit, I'm not righteous, and I need God to make me righteous. I need help. Can you show me how to do that? We need to get rid of some spin doctors, I'm persuaded. <laughs> spin doctors. Uh, spin doctors, that, that means somebody who can take any situation, any moral issue in life, and twist it and spin it until they make that moral immorality, uh, immoral situation, make it right. Whatever it is, whatever circumstance, whatever concept, uh, you, you can talk about any heinous sin, any gross iniquity, and somebody's going to be able to spit it and say, See, it's not that bad, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, the old saying, uh, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And so you can take any sin and you can, can make it all right. You can justify it if you're given enough time and uh, enough, I guess, help from the world. Friends, you cannot. You cannot undo 1 John 3, verse 4. John said, for all sin is transgression. If you are missing the mark spiritually, morally, it's because you have transgressed the law of God. All sin is transgression. You've stepped over the line of God's law. All have done that. Romans 3 verse 23. All who have reasoning ability, all who are accountable to God, have done that. At some point in life, we just need for the world to admit, well... Yes, there is a sense of right and wrong. There's a standard of right and wrong, and I violated that standard. Here are some Pharisees in Jesus' day who wouldn't say that. Jesus can't help that person. Jesus cannot help that person find a way to the Father. He can help the person who admits their need for God, their own shortcomings, their own inabilities. I cannot think my way, plan my way, uh, I cannot uh, work my way out of my sin problem. It's just not possible. 
That's why salvation is by grace, through faith, Ephesians 2 verse 8. That's the system of faith we're talking about here, the gospel that Christ signed in his blood. Jesus did not come to destroy the law. Jesus did not come, come to call the righteous to repentance, only sinners. And this one I really like. Uh, if you're writing, I'm going to say this a couple of times so that you can get all this down. Jesus did not come to send an unrealistic, pacifistic, philosophical mindset to earth, but to reveal the reality of distinctive, committed discipleship. Now, I've got a friend that talks that way. I'm sorry. I just had to put that in. Here's how Jesus said it in Matthew 10 and verse 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. That unrealistic, pacifistic, philosophical mindset. I am not come to send peace, but a sword. The reality of committed, distinctive discipleship. Jesus came not to send peace. When we say that, we have to stop and think, no, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say in John uh, chapter 14, uh, verse 27, Peace I give unto you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world give, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That kind of peace. Not peace that the world would claim and say peace is the absence of conflict. No, friends, that's not real peace. If peace is the absence of conflict, then all the dictators in the world have it right. You see, uh, they're ruling over a group of people who submit to them under fear of death. If you were that person who was submitting under fear of death, would you be at peace with that person? Well, you would just be submitting to them. You would not be in a peaceful relationship. There would be no conflict. But would that be peace for you? No, that would be torment. Peace in the new covenant of Christ, the peace that Jesus came to leave with us, is the peace that comes, uh, that Paul said, passes all understanding. That, that peace of God that passes understanding, uh, when he is telling us in Philippians chapter 4, that when we put our mind on good things, uh, and when we dwell on those good things, and when we do those things that Paul taught by example, Philippians 4, verses 7, 8, and 9, the God of peace will be with us, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's the peace of knowing that I'm in a right relationship with God, that I have uh, accepted his offer of salvation, combined with the terms of that offer, and God has then given me that peace of mind that says, I know I'm saved. I know I am forgiven. Now, there are some situations where people think that they're having peace. And they're wanting to have a peaceful environment. And so what they do is compromise. Friends, brothers, and sisters, you cannot compromise the gospel and have lasting peace. And here's another thought. If you're in a relationship where you're the Christian and 
that person that you're closest to is not a Christian? If you compromise your faith, if you compromise the gospel of Christ in order to maintain a peaceful environment at home, how will that person ever be converted? You render that person unteachable because you have shown them that the gospel doesn't really matter that much to you because in order to keep peace at home, in order to have the absence of conflict, you're going to deny your Lord and choose them. You're going to deny your commitment to Christ and say, whatever you want me to do, dude. Whatever you want me to do, honey. Want me to stay home Sunday morning? That's fine, I'll do that. As long as you are, are not that uh, unkind. And as long as we can have peace, why, we'll compromise on anything. There's some folks that have that mindset. One fellow told me years ago, I was a student at Fred Hartman. I, I was working $1.75 an hour. Now, you think you've got it tough. <laughs> $1.75 an hour working as a student uh, at a Christian college. And I don't know, they probably haven't upped it that much. You probably work for Fred Hartman. <laughs> Uh, and if you're a student, they have the right to do that. But I was working with this fellow, and he was a brother in Christ. Went to a different congregation than I went to, but we got to talking about some issues, and he said, I can drink with the drinkers, and I can pray with the prayers. And I thought, brother, what kind of impression are you trying to make on that drinker? What are you trying to show them about the gospel of Christ? I could bring it even closer to home than that. I have two uncles. One a Christian. One never obeyed the gospel. The one that was a Christian thought, well, you know, the way that I can get through to my brother-in-law here is every now and then when I go to visit him, I'll have a beer with him. And I actually observed him doing that on one occasion. And I just shook my head. And I thought, how can you do that? Well, the other uncle, the drinker, never obeyed the gospel. He died outside of Christ. And look at what that other, the Christian uncle, what he sacrificed, what he, what he did to his own soul. Put his own soul in jeopardy, trying to make a favorable impression on someone about uh, how much he could compromise of his convictions. You as a Christian, compromise your convictions. You make that person you're trying to impress unteachable. Don't go there. Don't do that. That's peace at any price, and it's not the kind of peace Jesus came to bring. That's where he wanted you to have a sword. That's where he wanted you to take the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6, verse 17, and use it and say, look, friend, this is how you can cut sin out of your life. Use the word of God, and it will help you. Compromise is refusing to wield the sword that Jesus sent into the world. That's what he came to do. Not the compromising kind of peace. In Matthew chapter 20, in verse 28, here's the fourth of our things that Jesus did not come to do. In, in verse 27, Jesus said, Therefore, whosoever be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister 
and to give himself a ransom for me. Jesus did not come to be served in his three and a half years of ministry, but he came to serve. There was work to do, and he came and he did that work. What's Jesus trying to teach his disciples? He's trying to teach his disciples there is not and never will be a hierarchy, a clergy among my people. That's what he's showing them. The, the uh, Gentiles, why they, they establish a government, they put somebody at the head of that. They, in their societies, they have somebody ruling over everybody else. They, they have people who are seeking that glory and others giving them that glory. Not so among you. You want to be chief? You want to be promoted in the first place? You serve. And by the way, you'll never get first place. Colossians 1 verse 18 tells us that belongs to Jesus. He's the head of the body, the church, the firstborn. That in all things, he might have the preeminence. There's only one ruler over the church. One head over the body, and that's Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 23, verses 8 and 9, he said, There will never be a time when it will be right for you to call someone in a religious context Rabbi. That means master teacher. Master. Never be a time when it will be right in a religious context, verse 9, for you to call a man father. What do we have today? Reverend equals rabbi. Father, can you believe? People are so bold as to do exactly what that passage condemns, what Jesus said not to do in religion. Don't call them father. He means it in religious context. And yet people do it all the time. Today, just because a fellow has been to school, got some honors, and where's his back? That is exactly what Jesus said. I know both. I did not come to have that kind of situation among my followers, among believers. Don't call a man rabbi, don't call a man father. That's not what I want. I want you to all be one, John 17, 20, 21, so that the world may know that you are my children, you are my disciples, and that the Father hath sent me. Now, how is it? Jesus did come to set some in positions of responsibility in the church, and I need to respect that. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, the Bible tells us, the Holy Spirit said, Submit to them that have the rule over you, and obey them. That is, have the rule over you in the Lord. That's in the church. And obey them. As they who are watching for your souls, that text is telling us. Those men whom God has said to be, Christ has said to be in his church, responsible for the local congregation, the elders of the church. They are watching for your souls as they who may or must give an account unto God, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. Make the elders happy. Make the Lord happy by submitting to the leadership that God has placed on the shoulders of those elders. They're the ones 
that have that responsibility. There is not an equality uh, among all of us in that sense. We're not all responsible for what the elders are responsible for. We need to submit to that, uh, to them and to that for which they are responsible. Here's another thought. When Jesus said, you need to serve like me, not try to be served, not try to be the focal point of attention, uh, and not try to run the show yourself, here's something else. Paul said in Philippians 2 verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to describe what we're talking about. What are you talking about, Paul? We're talking about how Jesus humbled himself and became a servant. The mind of Christ. Luke chapter 17 verse 17, there's a Samaritan man who was one of ten lepers that were healed of their leprosy. That Samaritan was the only one that came back and gave glory to God and knelt at the feet of Jesus and worshipped Jesus. And Jesus asked, there were not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Well, there were ten who were cleansed, he said, and only this Samaritan has returned to give glory to God. What's the point of that? What's the mind of Christ in that situation? If I have that for which to thank God and to glorify God, I need to be glorifying God. If there is some setting where I need to be serving to glorify God, I need to be there. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 said, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good when the church comes together to provoke one another unto love and good works, what do you think the mind of Christ is about that situation? Well, the mind of Christ think, well now, these fellows, these ladies, they all have something in common. They have all been cleansed of their sin. They've had their sins washed away in the blood of the Lamb, Acts 22, 16. They, they probably should be coming back together to give God the glory for that on a regular basis. Provoke one another to love and good works. Verse 25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the matter of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, right now somebody's thinking, That's a Sunday morning thing, Brooks. You need to be saying that. You should have said that Sunday morning. I, I think I did, but I'm not sure. But... What I'm wanting you to do is to help somebody that doesn't do what you do, doesn't attend gospel meetings on a Tuesday night by choice, to see that. To see the mind of Christ, the mind of service, how it is what the Lord would want you to do. The mind of Christ about attendance would be every time the church comes together to glorify God, I need to be returning. I need to be with them to give glory to God. For all the good in my life. And especially the spiritual good in my life. Can you take that and use that? I believe you can. And there's just one more thing I want to talk to you about. The last thing that Jesus said that, that I find, he said he did not come. To, John chapter 12, verse 47. He tells us that there will be some who will reject my word. 
If any man hear my words and believeth not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Don't get it. <laughs> in that setting, Jesus did not come to judge the world. At that time, Jesus is wanting people to judge righteous judgment, John chapter 7, verse 24, and to see that He is the Son of the living God, the I Am, who repeatedly says that in the Gospel according to John. I Am. The way, the truth, the life. Before Abraham was, I am. He's wanting people to understand that he is the I am one. The I am who has always been and who will always continue to be. But he's come in the flesh for our benefit. He's come in the flesh to save the world. And he did not come at that time to judge the world. Same thing he said in John 3 verse 17. He, he did not come, the Son of Man has not come to judge the world. But that the world through him might be saved. Right now. What is our work? What's the goal of the church? The work of the church. Well, you say it's threefold. And there's evangelism, there's edification, there's benevolence. Those are three things we do to accomplish the goal of the church. The work of the church. The work of the church, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, is to bring glory to God. Now unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. How long? Throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That's how long we're supposed to be doing that. Giving glory to God. That would include benevolence and edification and evangelism. But I would say that evangelism thing is mighty important in the mind of Christ, wouldn't you? He didn't come to judge the world right now. He's not wanting us to stand in the judgment of the world, go out and stand before people and say, I see by the way you're living, you're lost. Sorry, uh, but you look like you're doing well, you're saved. We're not, that's not our goal. That's not our job. That's not what Jesus gave us commission to do, is it? He said, go preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. You let him take care of the judgment part later on. Right now, he wants us to have the focus that he had in Luke 19 and verse 10. What he did come to do, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm afraid in many places we've lost that focus. We, we've learned how to do some things that are comfortable that make us feel like we're doing the work of the Lord, but when it gets right down to it, we have to ask the question, am I sure that I'm doing the work of the Lord? Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, when he said, uh, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's evangelism. That's seeking and saving the lost. That's what we must be about. I'm afraid we've, we've let that slip just a little bit. Maybe a lot in many places. We are not a spiritual social club. In spite of what I just said in the previous point. Yes, we are to get together and encourage one another. But we're not a spiritual social club. We're not a preacher's fan club. Okay? 
I don't want you to be in my fan club because I might have to tell you the truth sometime and it's going to be something that's uncomfortable for you. I want you to be in the worshiping Jesus club. I want you to be in the service to Jesus Christ mindset and not service to a preacher. It is a good God. And he will show you the way of truth. I do believe. Don't have any doubt about that whatsoever. So don't be a follower of Billy Hayes. Be a follower of Jesus Christ. And then he'll help you in that work. So don't be his follower. Follow Jesus. We need to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we do not regain our focus. We're going to be like that church at Ephesus. Remember what Jesus told that church at Ephesus in Revelation Chapter 2, beginning with verse 4, when he told them they had left their first love, he said, You repent, lest I come quickly and remove my candlestick. We will cease to have the right to be called the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus did come for a lot of good reasons. He said in John 10 and verse 10, I am come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. I hope you'll remember all those things that Jesus did not come to do. Because they help us focus on that one. He came to do the will of his Father that had sent him, John 4, verse 34. And he came to fulfill that work, to finish that work. He came so that we might have life through him. Tonight. He had a full and abundant spiritual life. You, you know what that is by, by experience. And I don't mean feeling. I mean by knowing. Have you experienced the full and abundant life? Well, that only comes by full submission to Jesus Christ. By putting Him first, letting Him be the head of all things spiritual, letting Him be the master of your life, not some other person, but Jesus Christ be your master. Let him be the one who saves you, who cleanses you, and whose example you follow in all of your life. You start that with faith in him as the Son of God, John 3.16. You must then repent of your sin, Acts 17.30, for many reasons, but here's the big one, because God commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, that's what Paul said about it. He's talking to pagan unbelievers. He said, God commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. That's the Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus didn't come the first time to be your judge, but the next time you see him, he will be your judge. Repent of your sin. Stop sinning on purpose. Confess your faith in Him. Matthew 10, 32. Be buried with Him in baptism because He said to me, Mark 16, 16. Raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4, because that's where Jesus put it. That's where Jesus said it would happen. And you can know for sure once you come up out of that watery grave of baptism, God has washed away your sin. You will live faithfully to him from this day forward. You will hear him someday say, Enter in, thou good and faithful servant.